Welcome to Future Ed, the show that explores the future of education. I'm your host, Peter Croft. Our guest on this episode is Josh Pierce. Josh founded Socratic Ventures, a venture capital, private equity firm focused on patiently building companies that meet deep needs in higher education. In this episode, Josh explains why his firm takes a different approach than most venture capitalists, his definition of what an education is, and the companies that Socratic has invested in. He explains some of the big systematic challenges that exist that present opportunities for entrepreneurs, as well as some of the misconceptions about where higher education is going. Josh shares some resources he has found helpful for people who want to navigate the space and explains why he believes investments in educational companies can offer great ROI if they are focused appropriately. Josh also talks about a company he wishes Socratic had invested in with the benefit of hindsight and what changes he hopes to see in the education space in the future. This episode is packed with insights from someone who has been at the cutting edge of the higher ed space for more than 10 years during a period of rapid change. We hope you enjoy hearing Josh's insights. Josh Pierce, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. What is Socratic Ventures? Uh, We're a private equity firm. So from a legal perspective, we're structured just like that. We have limited partner investors that that have invested into us to follow our uh, our model of investing in and building education companies. So uh, I realized that was sort of a nebulous statement. I know we'll get into it here in a little bit, but we're a private equity firm that focuses on uh, investing in and building uh, new model education companies. So can you just expand on that a little bit? What is that specific focus of your equity firm? Yeah, so so though we're structured like a private equity firm, um, uh, we don't really behave like one uh, at the end of the day. So it might be easier to say some of the things we, we don't focus on doing. So um, we we don't take a lot of pitch meetings. We don't uh, uh, take a broad approach and sprinkle money around and essentially try to invest more money in the winners and wash our hands of the losers. Uh, I, I, as an operator in the space uh, before uh, becoming an, uh, an investor, uh, got really frustrated by the way that most uh, venture capitalists, especially uh, tell ed- education companies to build themselves. Uh, I think it requires a m- much more patient, uh, uh, longer term oriented uh, approach to build education companies. Uh, and that's really what our, our fund and our firm was capitalized around, uh, around doing. So, um, uh, so we're not taking a lot of, of pitches. We generally really only invest where we can help build. Uh, and that means we're much more focused. So in today's world, we have four companies that we focus on uh, that's, that we've worked on over the past six years. Uh, a year, two years from now, you know, four might become eight, but it's not going to be 25, right? Uh, and that's because generally what we're working with our companies on is the, the zero to one problem right? Uh, building teams, finding customers, finding channel partners. Um, we spent a lot of our time on, on those kind of things. Uh, the people issues, uh, a lot of time on that. Uh, we generally don't spend a lot of time like you would see most VCs and, and deal guys doing on, on deal structuring or, or things like that. We, our team has a lot of experience in that given where we come from, so uh, we can keep up. Uh, but it's really a very different model. And it's really driven by a thesis that education companies, in order to be more sustainable, be more scalable, and ultimately, I think, um, have a bigger impact uh, on people's lives and just the industry's overall ability to evolve, uh, we, we thought it was there needed to be a different approach. Uh, so um, I don't know if that creates more questions, but that's we, we follow a different model. It's much more intensive. Uh, we call it, you, you heard me in the beginning say it's a private equity firm, uh, not a venture capital firm, even though those two things are oftentimes from a legal perspective structured the same. Uh, but a private equity approach uh, I found in my career is much more disciplined. It's much more concentrated. Uh, uh, and we think that that more disciplined, more focused approach uh, helps companies to grow up better. Uh, and as, as more sustainable, more economically efficient um, uh, companies than the more venture capital approach, which is a much softer, uh, less disciplined uh, approach. And I, I, uh, I liken it to 
uh, you know, growing a company up is much like growing a child up, right? Uh, there are certain things that, that it's okay for them to be doing when they're two, three years old, stumbling into walls and things like that. Uh, but as you grow them up, there are certain things you need to start expecting uh, uh, them to do and working with them on being able to do. So taking out the trash. And the first time that you ask the seven, eight-year-old to take out the trash, he's probably not going to get it all the way there or all the way in the can. And that's going to be frustrating. Uh, but you do that so that at 12, you can count on it being done. Uh, and so that you can begin to work on other things. And so that you can grow up a walking, talking, contributing adult human being that at 35 years old, somebody comes along and says, wow, where did this great human being come from? Right. Oftentimes that, that comes from great parenting, I think. Um, so we take that approach. We call it private equity because that's what I learned once upon a time in my career in the private equity business was taking a much more disciplined, focused approach. It was a great way to get a company to turn uh, um, or to you know, grow up the right way. Uh, and I generally, in my time as an operator, was oftentimes working for venture capitalists and found their very hands-off approach um, uh, just not to be very good for the companies. It was noisy. It, it was uh, confusing. Uh, and so we tried to marry the model of private equity, but with uh, a much earlier stage approach of, of uh, finding and building uh, education companies. I guess the last thing I'll say is, um, you know, of the four companies we worry about today, two of them, we, uh, as, the, as the members of Socratic, uh, have co-founded. So regardless of where the money came from, we were part of formulating the idea, but in, in, in both cases, the idea wasn't purely ours. Um, and uh, in a third of the company, we were the first outside money into an entrepreneur we'd known for a long time and really believed in what they were trying to do and thought we could be helpful. So that in that case wasn't our idea at all. Uh, we've learned a lot from that entrepreneur and from that company. Uh, and in the fourth case, it was uh, sort of an intrapreneur uh, from that third company that wanted to uh, sort of extend what that company did and created a fourth company around it and carved it out. So uh, we're not here to say that we have all the best ideas, uh, but we are here to say that we think there's a better, more thoughtful way to build education companies. So you focus on education companies. Can you tell us a little bit about those four companies that you invested in? Uh, sure. Uh, and I guess before I outline the companies, you know, we take a what I think is a different view about First, what an education is, uh, and then if you're going to build an education company, what an education company can be. Uh, so when I rattle off these companies, I think one thing you'll notice is none of them are running schools. Uh, I think when you think differently about what an education is in somebody's life, how it can be constructed, uh, how it can be constructed better, um, uh, you can think a little bit more expansively about what an education business can be. So we think of an education as an individual asset in somebody's life. Uh, we don't necessarily think of it as a, a public good. There's plenty of those byproducts, but we think of it as an asset in somebody's life that uh, we can help them better construct, or we can help a school or some other player better construct and get more value out of. Um, so the four businesses, real quickly. Uh, the first is called Vault, uh, which we started six years ago, six and a half years ago before we even really had a fund. Um, and we built the first product platform uh, for employers to subsidize student loan payments for their employees. So at the end of the day, that's an employee benefits business. Uh, it's sold to companies as a voluntary uh, benefit they can offer their employees. Uh, uh, student loans is the second largest form of consumer credit in the United States. Roughly 40 million of 200 million working adults have them. Uh, uh, and it's, it's, it's growing extremely fast. Uh, it is a very big financial problem that uh, Generation X and Millennial Generation comes to work with every day. Uh, it affects when they can buy a home, start a family. It affects the decision is to come to work for you, employer, and how long they might work for you. Um, so uh, uh, we built the first product platform for it at a time when we looked a CEO in the eye. Most of the time they were really asking, you know, do my employees really have this problem? Uh, and uh, here we are six and a half years later. I think it's generally regarded as the next major uh, vertical in benefits. Uh, we've seen a lot of company adoption. About 5% of companies now have a benefit like this, and we're one of two of the main platforms in the space. Um, you know, uh, imitation is the greatest form of flattery or one of the great forms of flattery. And so we've seen a lot of businesses from Fidelity uh, to large banks and others either develop their own or work with us. Uh, we partner today with uh, uh, large retirement providers like Prudential, John Hancock, Voya, um, uh, to offer our platform uh, to their uh, employer customers and then their um, 
just their individual customers who might be using them for wealth management. Uh, and that's so that they can, on one end, figure out what options are truly available to them uh, in, in student loan world, uh, and then actually tap subsidies from their employer. They, they may be able to actually put more money into their retirement plan, uh, accessing various matching dollars because of how much of a student loan debt load they have. Um, so uh, that's Vault. Uh, we were a co-founder in that one. Uh, that was a, my, my partner uh, was a, uh, an entrepreneur that, that had asked me probably for 300 times to invest in his previous business. And I liked him, but I just didn't like the business from where it was at. Uh, and as a segue in the conversation, just to make it productive, he said, well, let me throw something by you. you know, companies ought to subsidize student loan payments like they help uh, their employees save for retirement. And I was a former CFO and I was, you know, I was sitting there thinking, you know what, if I was still a CFO, I would have bought that. Because uh, I know a lot about the student loan world and, and what a load it is to to, to people uh, every day. Um, so anyway, that's where the company comes from. We co-founded it. Uh, that one has been through many cycles like they all go through. Um, uh, so that's Vault. Uh, the second company we invested in uh, is called Measure One. Uh, that was not our idea. That was the one that I mentioned a moment ago that was the uh, entrepreneur that we believed in for a long time. Measure One originally uh built out a data information business in the secondary markets and student loans. And I know that sounds like that is a very esoteric world. It's a very dark corner of the capital markets. Um, uh, but the challenge is one of the challenges in the student loan space and in just the student financial aid space, so how people can or can't pay for school, uh, is just how opaque the space works. People really don't know where student loans come from. They don't know all the dark corners they can get into. And this was an information business built by a team that, that had built and sold a business in the mortgage uh, data information world um, uh, that saw that student loans were the second largest form of consumer credit, and it's a giant black box that nobody understands. Uh, and yet there are hundreds of billions of dollars uh, in the secondary markets floating around that people don't know how to price. Um, so uh, we set out to build a, a data information business to make more sense of it uh, and, and built a very nice brand with customers like Wells Fargo and Discover and others, uh, helping them publish data, benchmark, uh, really understand what's going on at a, at a loan level. So how individual loans were performing, but also how uh, securitized pools of loans uh, were performing. Um, uh, in the process of doing that, we gathered a ton of academic data. So think of that as basically all the data that's on a transcript on an individual and pile it up times all the students who might have gone to a school over the past 10 years. Uh, we started working on that. We started connecting that very non-traditional data set, that is, the world hadn't structured it before, uh, and connecting it in a st statistically significant way to credit data and loan-level performance data. Uh, what's really cool about that, uh, again, these guys are all like data rocket scientists. You, you can only understand about one of every three graphs they're using. It's, it's, they're really smart. Um, uh, but what's really cool about it is you, you, with that depth of data that's finally structured, you get a very longitudinal view uh, of individuals, which means, you know, when, when for about 35 to 40 million people in the United States who have a, no credit score or they have what's called a thin credit score, so there's just not enough data in the file, you can't be seen by the standard credit bureaus and others. What happens when you connect this data, academic data, which is very upstream from credit data, you get a very rich longitudinal view of the individuals, which means that for a lot of financial services companies, uh, a lot of employment verification companies now, uh, a lot of different things, affinity group verification, um, uh, students who are, are trying to return to school, uh, a lot of different applications of this. You can better see within a risk tolerance who this person is likely to be and better offer them products rather than just saying no. Um, uh, so the real target for them now is those 35, 40 million people and working with the companies that want to sell to them. Uh, want to serve them uh, a way to better see who the individual is based on academic data, which at that end of the spectrum is much more predictive than credit data. Uh, and it basically means they're able to offer something when they otherwise would say no. Uh, so still a bunch of rocket scientists. It's now an API-based um, product model. So think of it like Plaid, if you know Plaid, uh, or Stripe. Uh, if you know them for payments processing, it's an API that allows you to access the transactional tools and then the structured data to make sense of uh, academic data if you want to incorporate that into your decisioning process. So if you've got leads and you want to rank who should we uh, focus on next uh, and you want to score those leads, uh, you can cut that data with academic data and, and, and better prioritize your lead set. Uh, and a thousand other uses that, that we're just sort of discovering. It's also a very discovery-oriented go-to-market uh, because of what that business does. Um, so that's measure one. Uh, the third 
well, the fourth business in sequence, but I'll skip this to the fourth because it's the carve out from measure one. Uh, in the process of gathering all this data and building a brand and understanding secondary market loan performance data, student loan performance data, and then finding all this academic data that gave us just a much richer perspective of risk, um, we had hired a team over from one, one of the largest uh, uh, student loan refinance company, SoFi, uh, and in particular, their chief credit officer uh, is just very insightful uh, and just capable individual who came over to, to help us in making sense of this data because he saw how far it could go. So in the process of that, uh, he built a team that structured a new type of student loan product. Uh, so just to be clear, we don't think there's anything wrong with student loans. There's nothing wrong with financing an asset in your life. Uh, you just need to finance it you need to calibrate that financing at right level that you can truly get an ROI, a positive ROI and real value out of that asset. Uh, so we, he designed a new type of student loan product that team did, uh, that did two things that were innovations on what the, the student loan world uh, doesn't do today. One, uh, we used academic data in the credit model. Uh, and so that's back to pure measure one and what they do. We're able to offer uh, access to financing to people who otherwise wouldn't have it. Uh, and we were able to price it better for them because we had more confidence in their risk profile because we had more data than, than standard credit bureau would. The second thing is that we got the schools to share the risk. So the vast majority of student loans are are 100% on the back of the student uh, uh, and the school is taking no risks. So if, if you don't drop out, if you don't do well, if you don't get a positive ROI out of this equation from paying them $40,000 a year or $40,000 for the overall program, whatever it is, um, that's not on them, right? They funded the revenue line with it. Uh, you take the risk. Uh, student loans uh, survive bankruptcy. Um, uh, you can never get away from them. Uh, and sometimes your family can't get away from them in death, which is one of the really sad things. Um, uh, so um, uh, we designed a, a risk model uh, because we had the data to do it where schools would share in the risk. So essentially, if the data said it looked like 5% of these loans are going to default, then then we ask you to take two times the risk uh, and we'll release those dollars to you over time out of an escrow account um, if the loans actually perform up and they don't default on us, but you're going to take the risk, right? Um, uh, so we hold back 10 cents on the dollar, right? Uh, and we'll take that from you uh, to cover the losses of the investors that staked this, uh, this student. Uh, so we carved out a new type of student loan product. Now, here's the thing about the student loan business or any lending business at all. It, it, it's ridiculously capital intensive. Uh, and the thing about Measure One, the data business, is it's ridiculously capital efficient and it's so versatile, all the different channels you can go down. Uh, so uh, because of that, uh, you know, and we're investors that have modest means, uh, we don't have the ability to keep up with uh, that. And here we are starting a student loan business that in its first year did, I think, $7 million of loans. In its second year did $35 million of loans. Uh, and last year did $56 million of loans. And hopefully this year we'll break $100 million. All that money, you know, roughly to the tune of $200 million had to come from somewhere. We don't have access to means like that. And that's what it takes to grow a business like that. So we carved it out. Uh, it's called Meritize. Um, it's got a great team. They're up in Dallas. Uh, and uh, they focus on uh, offering that type of loan product. And the last thing is where they offer it is also really cool. They're not going to your standard liberal arts school where a student's going to take five and a half years to graduate and it's going to spend $30,000 a year. They're offering it in partnership with employers, oftentimes in non-accredited areas. So diesel technicians, um, underwater welding, uh, aircraft maintenance. Uh, they do do nursing, which is accredited. But generally, these are going to be 8, 10, 12, maybe 18, 24-month programs. Uh, and somebody who needs an average of about $12,000 to be able to, to finance this in their life. So first person we ever made a loan to and one of the programs we focus on today is uh, the certification that it takes to operate uh, the machine that keeps your heart pumping while you're in heart surgery. That guy makes $90,000 a year. It requires about 10 to 12 months of training. Uh, and it costs about, I think, I think in that space, our average is like 10 to $12,000 of, of lending, right? Like someone could seriously better and improve their circumstances in life uh, by just getting that certification. So that's where we focus on. We focus on working with employers and, and uh, more trade-based, vocational, skills-based schools. Uh, they don't have to be accredited. Uh, so we also are able to walk into a whole part of the market that really nobody else focuses on. So that's the fourth company and chronologically the third company uh, on the list. Uh, and now the fourth company is called Acadium uh, and sort of true to the model that I told you about, I actually spend most of my days as the CEO of Acadium. Um, uh, and that's this model where we spend most of our time operating uh, in the companies. Uh, for now, I think 
because of this one and how much it rhymes with my background in online higher ed, um, you know, I think I've got the best handle of real tactical strategy uh, uh, with the business as opposed to um, uh, some of the other businesses, like the employee benefits one. That's one that you looked at and said, look, that ought to get built. That needs to see the light of day. But as soon as it did, and you could see that it was an employee benefits business, Josh Pierce is <laughs> not going to do you any good as the CEO of an employee benefits company. And it's going to drive me crazy. Um, so Acadium uh, is a business where we focus on following a marketplace model with colleges and universities. We build uh, course sharing networks where they can seamlessly share courses across institutional lines in a way that's much more powerful than the, the transfer credit world. So in a way that students can have a grade locally at the college that they attend locally, uh, even though they might take this course from somewhere else. When that happens, there's there's a couple of things. There's, there's dozens of things that actually happen, but there's two really powerful things um, that, that really open up the possibilities. Um, when it gets counted locally, you can change grades. You can focus on students who are highly likely to drop out. You can focus on students who are having a hard time getting through the standard system because you can get them something from somewhere else. And the second thing is uh, when you do that, uh, you can focus, you can tap financial aid. So you can integrate the local financial aid that that student has available to them uh, with resources from somewhere else. It's not something they have to pay for out of pocket and, and try to bring back. Uh, uh, it, it has a very significant impact on year-over-year -year retention rates of students. Uh, we now work with about 275 universities uh, on both sides. So uh, universities are taking courses from somewhere else, offering it to their students. And then on the other side of the marketplace, universities that are already running courses with empty seats uh, are offering those courses on the platform uh, for the for institutions to use with their students. So it works a lot like, or the model we really envision in the long run, uh, is like with the airlines. So um, uh, uh, where you can go to Kayak, Travelocity, Expedia, uh, who doesn't own a single plane uh, or gate at an airport, right? But you go to them to see the widest breadth of what's available to me to get from here to there. Um, and then you've got the carriers um, on the other side. So American and United and others who are perfectly happy to sell you a ticket directly, but also know that they, they can't manage the dual capital intensity of buying planes and managing gates and managing large fixed cost networks at the same time of managing a very dynamic direct consumer marketing machine. So they essentially offload that to the Travelocities and Expedias of the world. And if you look at what's happened in the airline industry over the past 20, 25 years, it's really quite amazing uh, because they have found a way to operate this way and better load balance the complexity of, of offering uh, direct to consumer uh, possibilities to the passenger at the same time they have to manage all this very tight capital intensity of, of planes and route networks. Uh, you don't really see airlines going bankrupt anymore. I mean, it does happen every now and then, but in the 80s and 90s, it was like, you know, every three months there was another airline going down or being recapitalized uh, time and time again. And then they'd get on a cycle and 10 years later, you know, they go bankrupt again. Uh, and that was because they couldn't manage the, that dual capital intensity. Over the last 20 years, you've seen them be able to get to a much more efficient footing um, uh, because they have the, the, in the middle or what are called global reservation, global distribution systems. And that's really what Acadium is designed to be is a global reservation, global distribution system. Uh, right now in U.S. higher ed, uh, we hope globally, um, uh, so that uh, we could see much more of a model where uh, players, many more players are able to work with different student verticals to help them find what they need to get where they need to go in their life, uh, but don't have to build and offer everything uh, themselves. And when you think about it, uh, just think about college and think about the courses you took when you were in college, right? We all took college calculus, maybe two versions of it, right? We all took statistics of some kind. We all took either intro to sociology or intro to psychology or one of those intro courses. We all took, I took intro to zoology instead of biology, but we all took some sciences with a lab. All those things are commodity parts to delivering every degree. And right now, Every college tries to build it themselves, and it's ridiculously inefficient. Uh, the, the model we really see in the long run is, is a production system in higher ed that's much more like Toyota builds cars than how Henry Ford built Model, model Ts, right? Henry Ford world, you get all the raw materials, you do it all yourself. Uh, you know, raw materials come in on a loading dock, and out the other end of a giant yard comes a Model T. And you can get any color you want so long as it's black, right? Uh, Toyota, 70% of the parts on a Toyota car are actually produced by somebody else, right? There's a reason why they hold back that 30%. There's a reason why I still go to Toyota to pay $30,000 for my truck, right? Uh, and I'm okay with 70% of it coming from somewhere else because I trust Toyota to have defined the spec and found the suppliers. And that's part of why they can build me a great car that will last me 
15 years, uh, even though they only make about 30% of it. If that can happen in higher ed, what happens is people get more valuable credentials because we can commoditize the component parts uh, that can be delivered by somebody else who can, you know, in, in, in economics, you'd call it specialization. Uh, so long answer, but, but Acadium essentially hosts today 190 course sharing uh, networks. We don't, we don't really call them marketplaces when we work with colleges, but networks uh, where this is happening all the time. So, so you might have your college calculus class is, is full this semester and you've got another 75 students who still need it, uh, or you've got 200 students who could graduate this term if they could just get one course. So we focus on working with schools to identify those bottlenecks in their academic year, and there are thousands of them at every school, uh, and then deliver courses to them that, that break those bottlenecks. So what kind of effect do you think Acadium will have medium to long term on the on the higher education space? So uh, in the short term, what's already happening is we are seeing student retention rates go up and graduation rates go up. Um, that means students are graduating faster. That means they're paying less for their degrees. Um, uh, they're getting into the workforce faster. Uh, so students are better off because uh, they're taking less time to graduate and more of them are graduating. Uh, those schools that begin to think this way are better off, uh, not just because statistically their students are doing better, because they're making more money. And that's sort of one of the um, uh, 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 conundrums of this, or one of the things you have to, to think through. But as you're able to serve more students with enrollments you otherwise wouldn't be able to, to do, you have more money. Uh, you have more money to compete. You have more money to be sustainable, right? And for a lot of these colleges, they operate at their, the thinnest line of margin, uh, if, if they do at all. So no matter how much it costs, they're actually not making a lot of money. They're barely surviving. So um, when they operate this way, they're able to serve more students, they're able to make more money. And then colleges on the other side are able to make more money as well. Uh, and both in the non-traditional and the traditional uh, higher education world today, it's a bloody competitive market. I mean, they are, they're killing each other to find students. And there's some demographic reasons for that. Uh, we're in a demographic dip after the millennials. Uh, but there's also just the constant innovation of, of, of digital marketing uh, and just how complex that is. I mean, it is like asking uh, folks who got used to riding a 10-speed bike to, to, to compete in an NASCAR race. Uh, it's just a very different game, and it's moving so fast right now, it's tough for them to keep up with. So most immediately, we're seeing schools be able to serve students better, uh, be much more financially healthy, and on another side, on both sides, actually, whether they're using courses or whether they're selling courses, what we are beginning to see medium term, like we're, we're into seeing this change right now, I would say we're, we're on the front of the curve of it, is schools beginning to outsource large portions of what they're asking their students to take in order to satisfy degree requirements. You know, back to that Toyota model, and we, we actually measure this at every single one of our schools, how much have they outsourced their academic year through us to other providers, right? And what we hope to get to is that that 50 plus percent world that Toyota's in. I think that'll take 10 plus years, uh, uh, even with COVID as an accelerant here. Um, uh, right now we are in the, our best customers are outsourcing about 5%, right? Uh, and we've got, and most of our, the, the volume of them are down at about the 1% level. Uh, probably don't have time for it here, but when you run the numbers on that, that's actually colossally huge. Like if the whole space were to do it just at the 5% level, um, we are talking about billions and billions and billions of dollars of trading amongst schools that wasn't happening before. Uh, if we can get to 50 plus percent, we're sort of in, in, in the absurd. Um, uh, but what we hope is that is that schools start to uh, depend on these networks in order to for their ability to produce for their students uh, what they need. Right. And, and we can measure that. Um, uh, so and what that shows up as and COVID is sort of accelerating this, but. Uh, what that shows up as is somebody who's got a plan and make an academic year work, right? So I've got, I've got so many classes, so many classrooms, so many faculty, I can only run so many sections of calculus or whatever, and I've got to coordinate it with everything else. And there's this whole mess of need, student needs that I can't serve. What we want them to begin saying is I'm going to, of the six sections of calculus I need to run, I'm going to get two from, from, through Acadium from somewhere else. And we're starting to see that. Uh, or if I've lost my chemistry professor out in, at a community college out in West Texas, Right. And I can't replace them in time for the fall semester. You know what? We can get that from, you know, through Acadium. And then over time, we just don't need that anymore. We always outsource that piece of, of our academic year. Uh, and we've got younger schools 
uh, now, I mean, uh, newer model schools, I should say, um, who don't want to go through the brain damage of building the entire general education catalog, for instance. Uh, so they don't want to have to build calculus and introduction to psychology and that when what they really want to focus on is a skill, more skills-based degree. They want to be good at the, the upper level skills-based stuff or something like that. You can get all of that through us. So you might come in and say, look, 50% of the degree requirements, which is generally what, what, um, the general education catalog represents, we're just going to get that from other schools through Acadium. We're never going to offer it. Right. And that's how you get to that Henry, that I think not Henry Ford model. That's how you get to that Toyota model. Uh, and, and what happens in the Toyota model is the Toyota is the way Toyota came into the United States. And ultimately over 30 years was able to grow and beat GM and Ford and, and their core market uh, wasn't that they came in and offered the same thing that GM and Ford were offering, right? They didn't come in with Lexus in 1970 or whenever they entered the United States, right? They came in with a little $1,500 Corolla, right? Which was super fuel efficient at a time when fuel costs were really high. And they were able to offer it to people that could not be served by the standard market. And then over time, their production ability allowed them to move into new markets. And eventually they offered Lexus and, 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 and beat GM and Ford, but they were able to offer something to a part of the market the others couldn't go to. They were able to make money doing that because they had a different production model, right? GM looked at it and said, I don't, I can't make money selling a $1,500 car. My production model can't do that. I got to make 15,000 on a Cadillac, right? Um, and that's what's happening in higher ed today. They're sitting here saying, I, I can't, I've got to charge $30,000 a year. That's the only way my production model works. And you've got most of the, the space sitting out there now going, but I can't afford that, right? Uh, and I think COVID is, that's one of the long-term effects of COVID, I think, is that that paradigm shift, I can't afford that. This ROI makes no sense. You know, 70% uh, of students graduate with an average of $30,000 of student debt, right? That's five to $6,000 a year they've got to find to service that debt. That's why they can't buy a home or start a family as soon as they want to, right? Uh, among other things, but that, but it's, it's, it's a heavy load. And so they're looking at it saying, I, I can't go to school that way anymore. I need something that's more affordable, but that then means the provider to them needs to have a way to, to more efficiently produce for you uh, profitably, um, you know, the degree that you need. Uh, and you see players like Southern New Hampshire and others who are doing it uh, in the Henry Ford way. Uh, they're doing it online and they're doing other things like that. That makes it much more efficient, but they're still trying to produce everything themselves. Uh, we think the better model in the future uh, is to decouple the capital intensity of finding the student, making understanding what it is they need and get, getting them the offering at the same time as managing all the capital intensity of building courses, putting them online and maintaining them, which is super expensive. Um, so the change we hope to see is we hope to see um, uh, there will probably be fewer there's colleges and universities 10 plus years from now than there are today. Uh, there's 4,600, I think, that are degree granting in the United States. There's 6,000 plus that are offering higher education credentials, whether it's degrees or something else uh, in the United States. Uh, there's no reason why, you know, 4,600 degrees, right? They all offer, a, 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 the, of those 4,600, there's probably 3,500 versions of, of an accounting degree in there. There's no reason why we need 3,500 versions of an accounting degree, right? We might need a few dozen. Right. So I think you'll start to see players consolidate, be able to offer something that you do need to get a good job. Uh, hopefully their production system evolves to where they're much more profitable at doing it and they run the other guys out of business. I think that's a good thing for students at the end of the day. So Acadium helps colleges focus on their strengths and it helps students maybe graduate with a, a bit less debt. What is the biggest challenge to Acadium right now? You know, I think we, this is a business that is uh, staked on mindset change, right? Mindset change that I think aligns with economic reality. Uh, I also think it aligns with history. Uh, the shift we're talking about happening in higher ed is a shift we have seen in, in almost every other major industry. So logistics, transportation, uh, manufacturing, we talked about auto manufacturing, but just supply chains globally have shifted over the past hundred years to this model. And we're, we're staking the business on believing that's going to happen, but it's a mindset change. Uh, and those are hard businesses to build. And it's back to, you know, we were talking about earlier about the mindset of building education companies. You have to be patient. Um, uh, so we look to find, we sell to and look to find leaders who believe in that same uh, uh, shift. Uh, 
uh, and or just driven by the economic realities to be more accepting of that shift. You can't produce it all here, right? Your students are demanding something more affordable and you can't offer it the old way. Um, uh, but it's the mindset shift. You know, you still got schools. I mean, take take COVID as an example here. You still got schools sitting here and thinking they're going to charge $30,000 next year and to cover the risk, they're just going to start early and finish by Thanksgiving. And you think the student's going to be okay with that. And there's a lot of early data from Google and others directly interfacing with students about how many you're not going to show or just going to sit out the fall, at least, if not the first, uh, uh, the whole year. Uh, and the colleges are tone deaf to it for the most part. I would say there are many of them that are they're actually doing some very radical things and some very innovative things. So I don't mean to beat them all up, but but generally I think they're tone deaf. They think they they, they still control the price and, and how this is going to happen. And I can tell you that's not what's coming through on the student side. So you you already mentioned that you see education as an asset and there are other public goods that come from it, but as a business proposition, it's an asset to you. So what kind of companies do you invest in? What are you looking for? You said you might grow to eight in a few years. It kind of depends what comes up, but what would you be looking to invest in? Yeah, so uh, it's a very careful model. Uh, it's patient and it requires a lot of work. So um, uh, the things we look for, like one at a Socratic level, I'm, a, I'm constantly looking for talent uh, for Socratic because our ability to work intensely in these companies grow four to eight, right, um, uh, is dependent on talent that has good operating history, has a good strategic understanding of the space, and has good networks of customers and other operators that want to work with them. That's what this model really depends on, more than, than access to capital uh, even. So at that level, I'm constantly looking for talent. Uh, in terms of what we're looking for in the space, um, uh, you know, we, we follow a model where, where one, the first thing we focus on is bona fide teams. Uh, so if you were to look at our pitch deck, bona fide teams is the first thing on the left of the filters that we run. Um, uh, there's a few obvious things in that. Uh, so one, we don't, we don't, we don't invest in work with first time entrepreneurs. Glad to be supportive of them. Glad to stay in touch with them. Glad to be as helpful as we can in their businesses. But there's just certain things you learn on your first time around and quite frankly, your second time around that, you know, you just need to break those bones before you're probably going to be, it's going to be productive for you to work with us. Right. Um, so, we, you know, but then there's other just more nebulous things about, you know, uh, we talk about finding force multipliers. You know, and there, are you a force multiplier? Like when we start working with you, are there now 30 other people that want to come work with us because you're here, right? Uh, and I think that goes on up and down the line. That's the way we want our companies hiring people. Like you're not going to come in here and need me to find you of this and get you of that. You literally are a force multiplier. I can send you into the jungle with a shoestring and you come back with an army. Um, so we're looking for bona fide teams. Some of that's subjective, some of that's objective. Uh, we look for big systemic challenges. Uh, so the, the, the nut you're trying to crack, the problem you're focused on, the mountain you're trying, trying to climb, however you want to say it, is truly something that is systemic, right? Uh, and one of the ways I think of it is it's like standing and looking at a mountain range that is the entire industry and understanding where the really big peaks are. Uh, and this is tied in with what you'll hear a lot of VCs talk about is, you know, you got to have a large addressable market. That's the official term they use. The reason for that is because you got to be climbing a big enough mountain that it's justifiable for you to try, try again, try again, and try again. Justifiable in your own life before anything else. You can justify spending your life failing at climbing this mountain, then I want to work with you. Uh, but big systemic challenges like that. So uh, when you look at it with the student loan business, right? 40 million Americans um, uh, at a minimum and a fast growing group are, are, are struggle with this every day. And the the our fundamental idea beyond the product idea was there's got to be a third party source of money to help Americans pay this off. We can't just keep going around talking about how bad student loans are, right? So how do we create a business that's able to tap a third party, a third party source of funds that wasn't previously available to help the American worker deleverage essentially. Uh, so big systemic challenges. It's not a better way to teach math, right? Uh, there's so much more to an education business than the education model. Uh, so big systemic challenges, uh, you know, with Acadium, right? Like we don't build, we haven't built a single course. We don't host the courses on a learning management system. We don't do any of that stuff. We're trying to get into the connected tissue between schools and courses. Every cost in higher ed that you're borrowing student loans for, every reason why you're, 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 um, 
slowing down to graduate happens at a course level. So what we're looking for is something where if we can fix the problem pervasively, there's dramatic change. And there's also a huge opportunity. Uh, so big systemic challenges in bona fide teams. Third thing is markets that we know. Right. And that's because like we don't have infinite resources. We got to we got to succeed at this. Uh, so it needs to be a place that is adjacent, synergistic, whatever term you want to use to things we've done before, places we know. That's why you see us generally doing things on the adult higher ed end of the spectrum. That doesn't mean so technically we can do anything K-12 or, or higher ed, but we're generally going to focus on places where we know customers, we know channel partners. We, could, we can vet if is that the real problem? right? Uh, that we're trying to fix. Is that really the right mountain? Right. Um, so markets that we know, and then last is places where we can get outsized influence in economics. Uh, and, and that sounds like a little bit more of a, of a mercenary one, but, but it's very intentional. It's the part of the conversation we had about following a private equity model versus a VC model. Like we want concentrated interest because we want our interest to be aligned with the teams that we're working with. Uh, and we want them bought into how hard this is going to be. Right. Uh, and it's only outsized economics and influence that allows us to be able to do that. And over time, we'll justify that our economic return for our investors is better than anybody else has gotten investing in the same companies. Uh, and every single one of our team members or our companies would tell you this. It's justifiable that they treat us in a different category because of how bought in and how thrown in we are with them. Uh, but what that means, bought in, thrown in, what that represents, what that turns into is it ends up as outsized influence in economics. Uh, but that's so that we can follow that more private equity model I was talking about where we are much more disciplined and invested into who you become uh, as a company uh, than most investors are going to be. So generally, those are the things we're, we're looking for. With that in mind, if you could go back in time and have Socratic invest in something maybe you didn't know about at the time, something you didn't uh, know was going to do so well, obviously for financial reasons, but not purely, what would you have invested in? Which company? Um, so there's a company called Degreed uh, that my uh, one of my partners in Socratic now actually was the longtime CFO of uh, that's grown to be just a very nice, very powerful company. It's in the corporate learning and development space. So they sell the companies the, the benefit of helping your employees access the courses and credentials they need uh, to develop up, you know, uh, to be better employees for you. Uh, and it's just been a very, very nice business. It started by some very thoughtful, smart people that were working on a problem that I've been working on for a long time. A lot of people have been working on, um, which is how do you translate the credit people really need, right? And how do you translate between that and what's actually out there and available and offered? Because there's a big disconnect there. And that's why uh, students slash employees aren't able to connect with the right courses and content uh, as often as they could. So they were coming at it from a very uh, geeky approach, which I love. I say that in a complimentary way. Um, and, you know, I, knew, I met the entrepreneur because I was helping uh, another business at the time get off the ground. This was just an idea in his head working with a professor at the time. He was really young. He was really stubborn, but all great entrepreneurs are stubborn, I think, uh, in some way. Um uh, uh, and it's just, it, it was the reason why I didn't invest and I'd stick, I'd still stick to it today, but I, I really am sorry I missed the boat. Uh, cause it would have been, it's, it still is a fun ride what they're doing. Um, uh, is it was, it was his first time around and that was why I, I didn't do it. And, uh, you know, funny enough in our, our first business, uh, vault, uh, we partnered with a first time entrepreneur there. And that's actually where that rule comes from. Uh, we, we, we paid a lot of, still are paying uh, a lot of bills uh, for taking that risk uh, on somebody um, that, that, that ultimately, um, you know, there's just a lot of bones that you got to break when you're your first time entrepreneur. So I didn't do it then. Uh, the numbers would tell you I should regret doing it. Uh, I will tell you I regret doing it only because I know it's been such a fun ride for them. Uh, and um Building companies is fun when it works. Uh, it's miserable when it doesn't work. Uh, and that's a ride I missed. So Josh, in general, with education, you talked about peaks and, and big mountains to climb. What do you think are some of those that perhaps you're not focused on, but are out there? Um, so one of them you can see people starting up right now, uh, but it's a big mountain, um, uh, is uh, helping students 
to pay for their credentials, their degrees, their things that get them better jobs, better outcomes in their life with a more equity-like financial aid solution than a debt-like financial aid solution. That's a big one. It's exactly the right mountain for people to be going up. Right now you see them trying what are called income share agreements, um, which have been tried for a long time. There's actually a highly developed market uh, uh, in Germany for these. They've been tried in Colombia and a couple other places. They've been tried in the States historically. And then here over the last few years, there's been a few different ISA businesses that have been started. They're all trying to get up that mountain. And it's fundamentally the right idea. Equity is, is much more risk capital. Debt is risk averse capital. And when you think about that, um, especially when you're on the young end of your career, that's when you need to be taking risks. That's when, even if you fail at this, it'll still pay dividends somewhere downstream. That's when you need to be taking uh, more risk-friendly capital. That's equity. That means whoever's investing you needs to, to share some of the risk with, what you, with who you become. Uh, now, it's a big mountain, right? Because I can reframe that discussion of being, taking economic interest in who you become, uh, and it's going to have to cross this minefield. I could reframe that as indentured servitude or, or slavery, right? If all I want to do is write an interesting article on the front page of the New York Times, and that's going to happen as soon as this business starts to take off, they're going to have to go through that fight. Um, uh, so it's fundamentally the right idea. Uh, it's going to take a long time to get up it. I think some of the businesses that are there right now have been overcapitalized with the wrong type of capital. So more venture capital that is going to be impatient uh, because it's just got a long way to go, but it's fundamentally the right mountain to be getting up. So uh, that's one. Uh, I think on the other end, uh, one of the biggest challenges is at the divide between K-12 and post-secondary. Um, the, the, the way K-12 is, and this is just speaking to the United States right now, um, uh, it's the different challenge globally. Uh, because globally, most places don't have a built-out post-secondary system. They generally have a built-out K-12 system of some kind. Uh, so that's the challenge there. The translation, though, between how do you pay for it? The way K-12 funds itself in the United States is very, very different than how higher ed funds itself. And someone crossing that divide, it's very difficult to build pathways that, are, that, that connect students efficiently from K-12 into post-secondary because of the way funding works. The players there if you're, if you're built serving K-12, you literally don't speak the same language as the people that are built uh, serving post-secondary. The reason why to solve it is because you can't get a good job today unless you have something more than a high school degree. So it's got to be solved. And it's a big hurdle to, to players who are working with students in K-12 to getting them all the way to where they can really plug in and keep up with this economy. Um, and is, is, is the divide between... Yeah, but how do I get paid? Like that's always one of your questions in building a business. Like, okay, it's all fun, great. You can you can you can get somebody taught and really smart and you know really capable, but how are you gonna get paid for it? Right. That's why you see degreed selling it to an employer, right, um, uh, and things like that. So the question of how do you get paid when it's two fundamentally different systems uh, is really hard. It's like saying you're gonna get paid in two different currencies, and you've got to figure out how those two things translate. Like the world figured that out in currency the world in, in currency world a long time ago. They haven't figured it out yet in education between K-12 and post-secondary, and that's a really big one. Any other mountain peaks that spring to mind? Oh, boy. I mean, there's there's a ton. One of the great things about the education space is it's so underdeveloped uh, from a sophistication perspective. Uh, it's one of the challenges investors have in investing in it is they don't really appreciate that. Uh, so, you know, the technology space is highly developed, right? I, I, I can build a multi-billion dollar business just building fasteners that go on semiconductors, right? But I couldn't have done that when IBM was building mainframes in the, in the 1960s, right? The, the space had to go through many, many evolutions to get to where it was sophisticated enough to do that. Uh, and evolution, uh, education will get there. Uh, but where we are today is we are back in the 60s transitioning to 70s. Uh, we're back with mainframes the size of football fields, right? Um, uh, and you have to appreciate that as you're building these, uh, as you're building these businesses. Um, uh, so, I mean, the last thing is one that I hope gets built off the back of Acadian uh, is the first expansive, uh, think of what Priceline was in the late 1990s with airlines, right? I mean, I, I was in college at the time and I thought it was the most brilliant thing ever. I can now go one place who's going to find me the most efficient price on multiple airlines, but otherwise I would have no idea how to do this for myself. I want to see the first Priceline for, for higher end the place that, that many, many people can go to see the breadth of options that are available to them, know that they're getting a good price and actually be able to book it. 
Uh, I want somebody to build that. Uh, hopefully, Acadium is a building block for being able to do that. Um, but but that's another one. I don't know how much you've kept in touch with other investors, but is there a general consensus out there to what another major problem is that isn't being addressed? You've mentioned a few, but is there something that uh, perhaps isn't getting the attention you think it should be? Uh, well, I don't know what the attention that it should be. There's, there's, there's uh, the challenge with low-income first-generation college students is one that's pretty pervasive. Um, uh, the foundations and the investors themselves are very interested in solving it. Um, you know, one of the things that most decision makers uh, oftentimes don't reflect on, uh, it helps once you see the data, um, uh, is they don't, ref they tend to look at higher education post-secondary or even K-12 through the lens of their own experience and then apply that to everybody else. And most decision makers, I would say, don't come from the world most people come from. Uh, like, I'm sorry, you, you don't. And you need to reflect on the fact that, 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 that most people don't go to schools like the schools you went to. You know, most people didn't, weren't raised in the environments that, that, that you were raised in. And so if you're going to serve them, you have to build structures that appreciate that. Uh, so low-income first-generation college students is a big bucket uh, that a lot of people talk about, but it's the non-traditional student, which if you look at the actual data on students, the vast majority of students, like 20 years ago, it was it was 72%. Now it's over 80% of students are non-traditional, which means they're older than the age of 24. They've got a job. They've got kids. They're not, they're not some 19-year-old wanting to go to, 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 to college and, and attend football games in the fall like I did, right? Um, and so building businesses that appreciate that, uh, are part of where, uh, uh, investors need to go. That's where some of them have gone. Uh, it's the bigger part of the market. I mean, just whether or not you're out to do any good in this world, if you want to climb the bigger mountains, that's where they are. Um, uh, it also makes the space much more investable because a lot of investors are, are trepidatious of investing in the, in the education space. Uh, you know, it, it feels too feel goody, right? That's for foundations and nonprofits, right? Uh, and a lot of them who've gotten over that in the past have lost their shirts uh, in the space because they didn't really appreciate that. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for it. But when you frame it to where's the opportunity and you look at the sheer size of it, it's huge. Um, uh, so focusing on the non-traditional learner, um, uh, solutions that bridge the gap between employers where jobs are and credentials that 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 students need. Um, those are big opportunities. Uh, my sense is that the better businesses need to be built there first. Like one of the things I say, one of the reasons why we focus on on higher ed is this is what an entrepreneur has to, to learn. Like, you try to find a place where you can add value. Uh, that you can you can get somebody to pay you for for getting them from here to there, and hopefully that's the shortest distance possible, right? Hopefully it doesn't take you five years to prove what what you're doing is valuable. Hopefully, I mean, oh, maybe it just takes you five minutes. If you can do that, you can replicate it much more fast. You can evolve much faster. Um, and so the, the comparison I make is, you know, you may come up with the absolute best way to teach the two and two is four. And yes, I know that if I'm ever going to teach you engineering or software development or pretty much anything, accounting, whatever. Yes, I know you have to know that two and two is four, but I can reasonably know that if I charge you $20,000 for an accounting degree, right? And I can deliver it to you for $10,000 and you can go out and get a job making $50,000, $60,000 being an accountant, right? There's good ROI in that for everybody. I calibrate it and I can build a business around it. I can't build a business around a better version of teaching two and two is four, right? And that's an evolutionary thing in the space. Like eventually maybe we'll get there. I hope we do. But the opportunities are down on the end of the spectrum where the validation is in people right now getting a better job, getting a better salary. You know, an example of this is if you're going to become a manager at Target, you have to have a bachelor's degree. Target doesn't care where you got it from. It's just you have to check the box, right, to go from, you know, uh, working in the store to becoming a manager, right? Um, so that's – you can solve those problems. You begin to evolve uh, uh, backwards, I think, uh, uh, into, or you're able to work down into the K-12 system eventually, but it's got to happen up at the adult end first, I think. And what are, what are the common mis misconceptions about where education is heading that you've seen? Uh, you know, one, everybody thinks it's going to get disrupted tomorrow, that all students are just going to take things online now and, and um, you know, nobody's going to go to go to college anymore. I, that's just for a lot of reasons the way the money flows, uh, a lot of reasons that that's just not going to happen. Um, 
uh, you know, that everybody's going to go out and go to a boot camp and get a job. Well, we've seen sort of the first couple evolutions of the boot camp space. And one of the challenges is some people get jobs, but a lot of people don't. Uh, and a lot of people, once they do get the job, don't perform so well in that job because they don't have a lot of the other skills uh, that they need. Uh, you know, back to one of your other questions, one area to focus on right now is, is apprenticeship operators. Um, like there's a fundamental difference between what an apprenticeship is and what a boot camp does. Uh, and they're much more effective at getting people, not just the skills they need to perform professionally, but also the soft skills uh, and the familiarity and the mentorship uh, that's needed in order to do it. And there are program operators doing true apprenticeships out there. Um, uh, so people that, you know, that's one of the misconceptions that everybody's going to go to a boot camp and everything's breaking down and colleges are going out of business. A lot of colleges will go out of business, um, but students still need, they still demand, like I'm buying a credential that's actually going to trade and be a value here, right? I'm not just, I know I need the skills, but your brand may not matter. Is, is IBM going to recognize your little boot camp certification, right? Uh, are employers really going to change and move that fast in recognizing these non-traditional credentials? I, I don't, I don't see it happening. I mean, one to balance the other, the other side is, uh, there are a lot of people who believe that the traditional college experience is, is not going away. And if you look at the data, it's already gone away. Like barely anybody gets to experience that anymore. Um, uh, but we still hold on to it and to this cultural image of what it was. I mean, historically, what universities were, were not supposed to be, you know, factories for producing human widgets for the economy, but that's somehow what they've become for employers and for students, but funny enough, not for the schools themselves. They still are attached to that old role uh, that they played in Western civilization, which is a noble role, and 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 the portion of them that are actually doing it should return to it. So, what will education look like in five to ten years from now, as a broad stroke? So, what I hope it looks like uh, is it's much more individualized. Uh, that doesn't mean there aren't businesses helping to individualize it for you, but uh, in the extreme, what I hope for, you know, maybe it takes twenty years, not five, but. I hope that that there is, you know, a rich ecosystem of the Priceline, Expedia, Travelocity that helped me find, you know, Hotels.com, uh, TripAdvisor, Airbnb, right? Uh, I hope there's a much richer, um, uh, more individualized access that learners have to helping figure out how do I get me and my family from where we are today to where we can be. Um, uh, that there's not just the narrow set of options and the perception of the narrow set of options that you may or may not have access to uh, that exists today. I hope that changes. Uh, that's much better for the global learner uh, and ultimately for us as society um, than the world we stand in today, where a lot of people feel left out, left behind, uh, and quite frankly, they are, uh, by a system that says, you know, back to something I was saying before, so by a system that says you can have any color you want as long as it's black. If someone wanted to navigate some of the things you've been talking about some of the models maybe they're not familiar with do you have any categories this is a strange question but is there anything that you can help them to sort of frame their thinking around these changes i mean i would tell you the, the problem set in education if it, once you get down to it once you spend enough time in the trenches understanding where education models are broken where business models are broken the problem set is is a pretty rudimentary one it's, just, it's not that complicated um, the, and most of these problems have been solved somewhere else before. Uh, that's what I think is so much fun about what I do and what we get to do at Scratic and what our companies do is, is in every one of the cases of our existing businesses, um, the problem is one you can abstract and say, other industries have already solved this problem. Let's go learn from them how they solved it and let's apply it here. You know, you don't have to define some brilliant um, uh, solution, right? It's probably already been solved somewhere and you just need to do the hard work of adapting it to the education space. Uh, that's where I tell you, you know, in, in understanding this space, one of the things that, you know, is part of the mission of Socratic Ventures is, you know, we may only do four companies, eight companies, um, you know, in the next several years. Um, but part of what we're trying to do is show people, professionals, um, uh, as operators and also as investors that you can come here and spend a life here building, investing, growing companies, you can do by, well by yourself, first from a purpose perspective, uh, and second, just uh, uh, financially, right? That uh, this is a place you could spend your life, you can better the world, but you also don't have to do that at the expense of yourself. We want to prove that. Right now, we've got four companies that hopefully we can prove it in. Maybe that'll grow to eight. Um, that's part of what we want people doing. And so 
in looking at the education space, you got to understand where people really are versus where you think they are. Uh, you got to understand um, uh, developmentally, where is the industry, right? What's it capable of digesting today versus what does it need to digest you know, 10, 20 years from now, right? And that's back to, you can't build a business here that could be billions of dollars making fasteners for semiconductors, right? That's, that's too elemental a piece that has to be coordinated with millions of other parts that aren't ready to, to adapt to it, right? So the way that shows up, that's the example of somebody who's come in and can teach you, you know, in higher ed world, like has got the best application for teaching differential equations. That's really great. No way to sell it because the space doesn't have a way to digest it. What the space does have today that it didn't have even 10 years ago, and there actually is a really great business called Outlier that's doing this right now. They, 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 they do have a really great way of teaching you college calculus and you can digest that because of the way your economics work. But you have to come in, you have to look at the space, understand how it's really structured, where its players, both its customers and its providers really are, because that's, that's where the money flows uh, or doesn't flow. Uh, and then you have to find, I think you abstract the problems that you see there to where it's been solved somewhere else uh, and, and then bring it back and try to apply it here. And you really can't. I mean, the development of the space is back in the 1960s with IBM building mainframes. It, you can, it's why it's so frustrating right now for students and employers and others because of the way that it works. But it's also why it's super fun and interesting for anybody trying to build a business in the space. What are the best books or resources that people can go to if they want to find out some of the things we've been talking about today that you found helpful? Yeah, you know, I probably won't give you the most fun reading. Um, but, you know, one, just personally, a, a big part of, of at least the way I see the world and what's led to at least my career choices, so love it or hate it, uh, is I would tell you to read Milton Friedman's Free to Choose. Um, I know that, you know, he talks about education and healthcare and a lot of other things in there, but it, it's, when I talk about an education being an asset and just thinking differently about how problems can get solved because you think differently about what the problem or the challenge actually is, uh, I learned that from Milton Friedman. Um, and, and it's affected the way I made decisions in my career. It's affected the way I look at every education business. Um, you know, secondly, uh, to go to the complete other end of the spectrum, uh, there is a really great research report published every September uh, by BMO, the investment bank. They published what is this giant research Bible. It's probably three, 400 pages long. Um, that's trying to fully map the education space from uh, corporate training to um, post-secondary to K-12 to childcare or early development. Those are the four verticals they track. And when you look at those four verticals, those four verticals combined are like something like a trillion and a half dollars in the U.S. economy. Like it's a giant portion of the U.S. economy. That's another thing I think most people don't appreciate. BMO does a really great job. They've they've tracked this for years. If you want to understand what the the high points of what the regulatory architecture is, if you want to understand understand the high points of how many colleges are there of these various types, students of various types, you know, what are the big branded businesses? What are some transactions that have happened? Things you need to sort of understand the landscape as opposed to spending days and days and days on Google trying to figure all this stuff out yourself. I would get that report every September. It's really easy to get by signing up for their conference. Um, uh, hopefully BMO gives me a kickback for saying this. Um, but I really do. I, every year, I, it's a great reference um, to go to that'll map you to other great sources that helps you understand the structure of, of the space uh, and what people are doing and not doing. Yeah, those those are, those would be my two. I know there's not a little, there's a lot of other ones I've geeked out on over the years on on the education space. They're pretty dated. Uh, uh, like politics, markets, and America's schools was a really great one from 1992. Uh, that was at the heart of the charter school movement. Uh, that's really fascinating to read um, uh, by uh, Chubb and Mo. Um, uh, I, I think. I mean, I I like to study the 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 economic histories of how did we get here, right? To understand a little bit about where we're going. So it's okay to go that far back. Uh, a nation at risk is a classic. Uh, just government report from the early 1980s uh, on the state of K-12. That one is actually sitting at the genesis of the, the charter school voucher and homeschooling movement altogether. Uh, it didn't spawn all those things, but it's sort of this icon that grew out of a lot of discontent in the late 70s and early 80s that, that grew into this massive homeschooling movement, this massive charter school movement, and, and this is sort of the piddling along voucher school movement. Is there any thought you want to leave 
with our listeners today? Uh, you know, I, I would go back to something I said before. Um, uh, I hope personally uh, for this one conversation, I hope for uh, my life's work. Um, I hope that you see that there's opportunity in the education space, that you're not tilting at windmills, that you really can drive change. Uh, you can have an impact. You can know the name of that person that you impacted. You can build a great business. You can make a lot of money. You can do well by investors. Um, uh, it takes a lot of hard work and a lot of learning, but I, I, I hope uh, that, that some folks start to see that, that there is real uh, purpose and opportunity to be had here, that it's not you know, it's not a choice between those two things that you actually can accomplish both. Josh, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Sure. Glad to be it. My guest today was Josh Pierce from Socratic Ventures. If you want to find out more about Josh or about Socratic Ventures, go to SocraticVentures.com. Thanks for listening. Subscribe. Tell your friends. See you next time.